From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Good afternoon and thanks so much for joining us and staying with us on this Wednesday. The big news of the day, the rate hike by the Bank of Canada. Looking ahead, we continue to expect economic growth to moderate and inflation to ease. But this will take longer than we forecast in January and April. As the global economy slows and higher interest rates work their way through the Canadian economy, we expect economic growth to average about 1% through the second half of this year and the first half of next year. That was Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem speaking earlier today. He also said that the central bank is prepared to raise the rates again if the state of the economy warrants it. Joining us to talk a bit more about this is Angela Calla, mortgage expert with Dominion Lending Centres and host of The Mortgage Show here on CKNW. Angela, thanks so much for taking some time today. My pleasure. Good afternoon, Jill. I know we were anticipating this. Uh, Some were holding out hope that maybe there wouldn't be another hike of this size. Who do you think or or who is being impacted when we're talking about mortgages the most right now? Well, you know, sadly, Jill, when this began, it was mainly variable rate mortgage holders. But now this has impacted anyone who's up for mortgage renewal. This impacts home buyers looking to make a purchase, but this also impacts businesses and each of us in our everyday um, aspects. So with this forecast, we continue to have to uh, plan for the worst and hope for the best. And we certainly have seen that the markets have also priced in an increase in September as well. And the financial impact this time around for the 10th consecutive hike that we've had this year is $16 per $100,000 in mortgage. And I wanted to to back up a little bit because you mentioned variable and we have talked a lot or focused a lot on variable rate mortgages. And I I know what you're saying, that it's not only that group that's being impacted by this. But, But what are you saying to people that still have those variable rates right now and are looking at this and looking at potentially a lot more that they're going to have to be shelling out every month? With our proactive mortgage management strategy, we have reached out to all of our variable rate clients to look at locking it at all points in time. Uh, Because depending on the mortgage amount, depending on the size, and depending on the cash flow of the individual impacts what their decision should be. And there is no one solution fits all. But I have to say, in the majority of cases, it makes the most amount of sense to either lock in your existing mortgage with your existing lender or to at least find out what that is, what that payment would be and what that rate is that they're offering you, and then get a second opinion to see if another lender might have a better option for you. Because when we are looking at our existing mortgage right now, the uh, the data is so different than it was the last economic time when we had this, because generally speaking, you used to pay more for a fixed rate for the price of security. But now, uh, with variable rates being at 7, with prime being at 7.2% for most banks, the fixed rates in the fives are much more attractive and actually help people qualify for more mortgage. If you want to rewind to 2021, Tiff Macklin was saying that they're going to keep rates low for a substantial period of time. And when they do raise interest rates, they're only going to do it, you know, slowly so people can catch up. So they put in confidence in the marketplace saying 
go out and buy and the qualifications just so happen that you qualified for more on a variable rate mortgage. So that's why so many people are just so shocked to have such a such a change of tune so quickly and by doing so by the guidance of the Bank of Canada governor himself. And you mentioned renewals as well and I think a lot of people maybe were holding out hope that things would start to come down. We'd see things going the other way sooner rather than later. That clearly is not happening at this point. So what advice then do you give to people as well that are looking and maybe not even renewing right away but know that that is coming that is on the horizon? There's a few options that they can do. So right now, while we're suffering with high interest rates, savings accounts are at the highest that they've ever been. So if you were prepaying your mortgage, if you were in a lower mortgage rate, you could take a look at what your payment would be today, put that aside in an emergency fund um, in a high interest savings account, which today are over 5%. And then you can 100% have your money safe, liquid, making money while you sleep to help offset the inflation and increase in interest rates. So that's an inflation hedge strategy that you can implement within your own personal financial plan. Secondly, start early. Don't be waiting for a few months before your mortgage renewal. If you are in the last year of when your mortgage is due, absolutely, you can start planning now. And we know from a demographics perspective, from the profiles that we see daily, that the people that are most impacted are those on a fixed income, already retired, and that still have a mortgage. And what um, uh, the best product that we've seen to help them navigate these times is a reverse mortgage because it allows them to use the equity in their home, not having to make a mortgage payment and not having a taxable event until things can settle down to the degree in which is more manageable for them because we know that their investments have been hit hard as well if they've been in fixed income investments. Hmm. And can you talk a bit more about the fixed income investments? Because I know we focus a lot on mortgages, but uh, you would also raise the point that this increase in the rate, that could also have a big impact. Yes, it can. And those on fixed income with a lot of bonds in their portfolios. And and generally speaking, as we mature and and go beyond retirement, we like to, you know, be safer in our our investment portfolios. And so many Canadians feel so much insecurity around retirement um, because they are not having the, they're not believing that they're going to have enough money to already comfortably retire. And most People are retiring with mortgages these days. And so with that in mind, if they take their money out of their investment portfolio at a time when it's down, then, you know, they're always they're not having the opportunity to make that back up in the market. So with that being said, they're looking at what overall financial strategy can we implement to utilize whatever's happening in the marketplace to our best advantage. And and they can use the equity in their home to do so if their home is still suited for them, because uh, a lot of people are very happy in their homes and they don't want to sell because if they sell, where are they going to go and rent and have the housing security and affordability that they already have with their mortgage nearly paid off, but maybe not having enough comfortably for retirement at this time with all the economy circumstances that have been in hand. And, and definitely uh, worth looking into and keeping uh, keeping on keeping track of what's happening with that. Uh, Angela, I want to flip to another side. We don't often talk about this, but there are people that do have savings and maybe they mm-hmm. have uh, their savings accounts looking at the interest rates. So what are you telling people in that situation where they are on the, that kind of, I, I suppose you could call it more comfortable position where you actually yeah. do have savings in one of those accounts? 
Well, this is great. I mean, the high interest savings account hasn't been, it's at its highest level that it's been in decades. And there is 100% liquidity, 100% security, no risk. So it's very comforting that those who do have the pleasure of an emergency fund set aside can make money while they sleep with absolutely no risk and offset, you know, and use those gains to offset their their risks. And also, we know that there's a huge segment of the population now between 30 and 40 that want to buy in the next five years. Um, and they're looking at this market right now and saying, well, how can I do it? They're at an ultimate advantage as well. Because savings rates with no risk are at an all-time high, they can utilize these high saving rates to get to their goal for saving for their down payment a little bit faster. And also the new federal program this year, the first-time home savings account, gives them the income tax benefit as well and the tax-free component of the investment earnings in that. But that's only available for five years. So if you are planning on making a purchase within five years, uh, open up an account today. It's free to do so. So that's another tool that's only around for five years that, Jill, when you and I were buying, was not an option. So now people can compound that to their benefit along with the tax-free savings account and an RSP. So using everything that's out there to their best financial uh, abilities will help them navigate these stormy waters and things will return to more normal levels, just not in the quick foreseeable future. No, uh, definitely. And uh, certainly that's not what we heard uh, with the announcement and what Tiff Macklin Macklin was hinting at. Uh, Angela, just before I let you go, what is the main thing or what are the main things that that you're hearing from your clients or you're hearing from people, the, the biggest concerns? Everybody's concerned about affordability right now. Mortgage payments are going up 50% on average, whether you're in a fixed or variable, and they're navigating their budgets, they're navigating the, um, the cost of everything. And so they're looking at how do they be the most strategic with their existing mortgage, whether that is renew early debt consolidation or consider a reverse mortgage, or how can they earn additional income or offset some of their expenses by um, utilizing their existing resources. So utilizing everything that's out there to their advantage is, is the, the action that they can take to try to move forward in these, in these scary times. All right, Angela, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thanks for doing this today. Always a pleasure, Jill. It is 12.34 on a Wednesday afternoon. That means it is time for us to check in with Claire Newell, Travel Best Bets president and founder. Claire, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Jill. I missed you last week. <laughs> yes, I, I took a week off. <laughs> as, and were you traveling? I was traveling and I wanted to share with you a, a little story because I'm sure I'm not the only person who has done this, but I'm curious your thoughts on okay. this. I won't say... Uh, what airline that's not important but i always travel with carry-on claire you and i have talked about this doesn't matter how long i'm going i can fit it into my carry-on bag and my it's the same bag i always use i've traveled many different airlines different planes always with this bag so for whatever reason i was flying home on the weekend and got stopped at the gate and uh, the attendant said you need to put the bag in the 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 metal piece the thing that measures it to make sure it'll fit on the plane and okay. it fits? It didn't fit. For whatever reason, the oh. little metal tab on the bottom of my bag didn't quite fit into the 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 measuring device. So okay. she said, nope, you, you have to check the bag. And I wasn't 
mean. I didn't. Uh, I was. I politely said, "Well, that doesn't make sense because I've been traveling with this bag for years. I always take it on the plane. It fits. It, there, it's 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 never been an issue." And she was right. adamant. Nope, nope. You must check the bag. It's not going to fit. You can't, you can't do that. So I said, "Fine." She gave me the tag, and this was a plane. Part of the reason too was because I wasn't getting home until midnight. And the last thing I wanted to do was have to stand at the carousel at midnight and get the mm-hmm. bag when I knew it would fit on the plane. So as I walked down the the uh, way, the whatever the you gangway. call it, the gangway to get yeah, on the plane, the I just ripped the tag off my bag, put it in my pocket and carried my bag onto the plane and put it in the overhead bin where there was plenty of room and I knew the bag was going to fit. And uh, I know you shouldn't do that, but it seemed kind of ridiculous that they were making me check the bag. Yeah. Oh, that's a tough one because, of course, I can't condone it no. that you took the tag <laughs> off and I'm not going to. But the reality is, is that I've seen and you and I've chatted about the fact they're getting so strict about these carry on bags because so many people are choosing to it, especially over the past, say, three weeks. It's been rough here in Canada, but around the world with the start of summer travel and um, you, you know, I just see this more and more. They're weighing those carry on bags. It's just crazy. So um, it's one of those things that if it doesn't fit in, more and more people are going to be asked. So I'm with you. I get it. I, I travel with the same bag for a long time. I do know that mine does fit. And I would encourage people to try and find bags that do fit, but they are getting more strict. And it's not just Canadian airlines, it's airlines all around the world. And a lot of the European carriers that are the ultra low cost carriers are being uber strict. And it's so expensive to to put it in checked. So if you really, really, really want to do carry on, you've got to know the weight and the size restrictions of all of the airlines involved and make sure that will fit in their racks. Yeah, exactly. The irony was there was so much space in the overhead bins. I've never seen so much space on a flight oh, before. Really? They were they were half empty, a lot of them. So I don't know if it's they made everybody check their bags, but you're right. They are cracking down. So uh, best not to get into that scenario if yeah, you no, can avoid it. Ju- Yeah, and Jill, one of the things I wanted to quickly ask you, I think it'll be helpful to people, when you were traveling, I'm not sure whether you were going outside of Canada or not, I'm guessing probably knowing you, um, but did you use, I mean, you have a Nexus card, but did you notice some of the express security lineups and were they being used or the ones for advanced declaration on the way back to Canada? It's quite close to the Nexus line. And when I was last traveling, I noticed that it was not being utilized by the vast majority of people. In fact, there were no one in that lineup. There was more in Nexus. You know what? I didn't notice that line, but Nexus was pretty empty. I did use my Nexus card. I did notice a difference because I flew in Vancouver and I also flew through Toronto. In Vancouver, they still made you put all your liquids in a one liter container outside and your laptop outside. In Toronto, you could leave everything in your bag. They've already adopted that. Leave everything in your bag and off you go if you're in Nexus. So which is, again, I've found it strange that the two different airports have the different policies. Yeah, and I think a lot of the lot a lot of people may just want to be reminded of the fact, you know, that new verified traveler program that's coming right across the country. It is in place in Vancouver, but certain lineups may not be utilizing it. But that's open to Nexus and Global Entry members, RCMP, and other Canadian police officers with a badge and ID, um, military, airport crew, and workers. So if you're in under that umbrella. 
start to use, they use the same line as Nexus. Um, it's called the Verified Traveler lineup, and passengers can leave la- uh, laptops, large electronics, and liquids inside their carry-on luggage. They can keep their shoes, belts, and light jacket on. Um, and if they've got kids 17 and under or adults that are 75 and older, they can go through as well with you as long as they're on the same uh, trip that you're on. Yeah, so hopefully uh, that will get things moving and becoming a lot more smooth. Uh, We're talking about this as well because the transport minister is saying that, yes, the cancellations, the delays that we saw over the long weekend, that all happened, but things are getting better. Yeah, I I don't know if that's the case or not. I've had so many emails over the past three weeks. It's unbelievable. And so many people who arrived into Vancouver or other airports across the country and their gates were not available. Others who were delayed and many in many cases, including the CEO of WestJet saying that they were delayed by, you know, 30 minutes up to four hours because there weren't enough NAVCAN employees on. And it was interesting because it wasn't just Canadian. Um, the what the you know, NAVCAN is responsible for the air traffic controllers. But IATA just came out saying that they are seeking Canada and the U.S. and other uh, European destinations where there is this problem that they ultimately be responsible for staffing properly and they're not because it's just causing this domino effect around the world not having um, NAVCAN fully staffed but other airport controllers around the world as well so it has been a very very rough go Um, Canada Day long weekend alone you and I didn't get a chance to talk about that but there were over well nearly 2,000 flights with Air Canada that were either delayed or cancelled so it's just I hope it gets better and they can course correct. But at the moment, it's looking like it's going to be nowhere near as bad as last summer, but still a rough summer, which is why I think so many people are carrying on as well. Yeah, absolutely. We also need to talk about this because for anybody who has plans to go to Europe, specifically Greece, they're bringing in that country is bringing in some new measures because of so many people going there. Well, yeah, and, and this is, uh, there's so many places that are dealing with overtourism, and this is just a crazy number that I'm about to share, but this, these types of things are going to be implemented by the end of this month, and it's to manage overtourism at the Acropolis. So visitors in June and early July alone of this year has increased by 80% compared to pre-pandemic levels in 2019. That's insane. That's just so many people. Um, I knew that Greece was going to be popular. Italy's popular. We're seeing Spain really popular. Portugal really ramping up as well. Um, But Greece, for sure. And so what they're trying to do is just to mitigate some of the chaos and ease some of the congestion at that site. They're going to be putting in things like time slots scheduling for uh, that will be a requirement Um, special visitor zones to streamline traffic fast lane entry points for guided tourist groups which would be a reason to actually do a guided group tour just of the Acropolis first of all it's really nice to go with a guide so they can tell you exactly what's up there and rather than reading it on plaques or just kind of staring at it not really getting the background on it but also electronic ticketing systems. And that, like I say, that's going to be fully enforced by the end of this month. So it's quick. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, that, that number, 80%, that, because that's a busy, busy place anyway. I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm finding it difficult to even picture it that much busier. Okay. I know. So when I was there probably 
25 years ago, and then I was there when my kids were like seven and nine, and then I was there um, just not that long ago. It's always felt to me that at the base of the Acropolis, it's absolute pandemonium. There's no, it, like this huge swarm of people funnels into a couple of lines and there's no barriers or queue at all. It's just people pushing and shoving. Unlike places like Disneyland, they just kind of have it nailed, you know? <laughs> and so um, I, this has been a long time coming and I'm, I'm glad to see it coming. I don't know how effective it will be or what, how well their, their systems will be put in place, but it has been absolute chaos. So I'm with you. I cannot imagine 80% more than, than 2019 numbers. Yeah. And touching on those numbers as well, uh, you mentioned it was a busy long uh, Canada Day long weekend and global air traffic. We're seeing those numbers rebound as well. Yeah. So IATA is a report um, that I look at for global air traffic and it's hitting in May because that's when that's the most recent numbers we have hitting 96 percent of 2019 levels. I suspect that that will go up even more in June and July just based on what um, we're seeing at airports around the world. But one of the other interesting stats that came out was last week, an all-time record for daily flights, according to a, a data that was released by an organization called Flight Radar 24. And they've been actually tracking global air traffic in real time since 2006. It's this Swedish internet-based service. So on Friday, July the um, 7th, they made this announcement that the day before, which was July 6th, they tracked 134,386 commercial flights, the most they've ever, it's basically the busiest day for commercial aviation that they've ever tracked. And you know, that doesn't include cargo uh, planes, it doesn't include private jets and uh, military. So that's just the commercial flights. That was a busy day. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> um, and this is good news as well for anybody uh, traveling to the U.S. that Lynx Air is going to have more destinations. Yeah, and you know, I'm sure there's people out there going, who, what, what, what Lynx, what are they? They're, they are one of the newer Canadian ultra low cost carriers along with companies like Flair and Porter and um, although Porter's not new, but they're starting to really spread their wings um, pardon the pun, um, but we knew that with the tour operators that were going to be consolidating with WestJet um, grabbing Swoop and they were also um, wrapping in Sunwing into their umbrella and only having really Air Canada vacations, doing package vacations, that these, these carriers would start to get um, or expand their network into places that we all like to go to, the U.S., Caribbean, Mexico. So Lynx is actually expanding their service this fall to the U.S. So this is the start of it. So from Toronto, they'll be going to Los Angeles and Phoenix. Montreal, they'll be heading to Vegas. Um, earlier this year, they started from Calgary, uh, Los Angeles, Phoenix, and Vegas. And they also started Toronto, Orlando. Whether they'll come to Vancouver um, and, and continue on with some more destinations from here. Goodness knows we need it. Uh, but this is definitely the start. And I know that Flair is starting to do this, Porter, Canada Jetlines. So it's, um, it's good news for those who are looking to go to the hot spots uh, over the fall. And just before we get people traveling, I want to mention this story as well, because it is, I'm interested if people will want to do this and it has to do with renting clothes. 
Yeah, isn't this so interesting? This is um, a report came out last week, and it was Japan Airlines. Is they've come up with a really unique way to get ancillary revenue. So ancillary revenue is all the, you know, can I have fries with that? So if you want to pick your seat, if you want um, advanced seat selection, if you want your to pre-order your meals, all of those things, um, depending on which airline, there's different services. But Japan Airlines, or JAL, is what, what we normally call them in the industry, um, they're going to be starting to offer clothing rental for flyers <laughs> who want to travel light and save on baggage fees. I'm kind of a big fan of this. Yeah. Um, they'll offer clothing rental for leisure and business purposes, and there'll be eight different types of outfits that passengers can actually have delivered to their hotel or their Airbnb or wherever they happen to be staying. The rental costs start from 28 bucks, and... You know what? If you guys going there, I, I said to my husband, he goes there for uh, for business on a regular basis, and he always has to pack suits. I'm like, you know what? The dry cleaning bill for a suit, you could just wear it and yeah. have it done, right? Like mm -hmm. it's. I think this is really interesting. It's going to be on all inbound Japan Airlines flights during this summer. Uh, they're mulling the idea that the, the organization that they're working with, which is called, I hope I don't um, pronounce this incorrectly, Sumitomo. Sumitomo Corporation. Um, so they're looking at extending that to other One World Alliance Airlines, which is what um, Japan Airlines is. That's the alliance they're part of. So this would be interesting. And I think it would be really great for some, some people. Yeah, definitely. See if uh, anybody goes and uh, rents their clothes instead of packing them. Uh, we've almost used up all of our time, but let's get a couple deals in here. Okay, I'm going to share Ireland self-drive. This just dropped by 300 bucks. So if you can go in October, October 2nd through 29th airfare, it's actually eight nights accommodation. It comes with your breakfast daily and the car rental, $13.99. The taxes of $7.32. And I'm going to Ireland in October. Ooh. I think it's my favorite time to go. So, um, And my last one is Puerto Vallarta in September, just the 17th or 24th. I found a deal that includes air and seven nights in a four-and-a-half-star beachfront all-inclusive for six fifteen taxes of four ninety, which is a great buy. All right, Claire, thank you so much, and we'll talk to you again next week. Sounds great, Jill. Thank you. As you've been hearing on the news, the Labour Minister gave a federal mediator 24 hours to send in recommended terms, all aimed at ending the B.C. port strike. And we now know that those terms have been handed to those involved in the Labour dispute, and they have been given 24 hours to look over those recommendations. There are many, many groups that would like to see an end to this strike. And joining us now is Michael Goring, the president and CEO of the Mining Association, of BC. Michael, thank you so much for your time today. Good afternoon, Jill. Uh, what kind of an impact is the port strike having on your industry? Well, uh, first, uh, let me comment uh, <clears throat> that, you know, the BC mining industry welcomed Minister O'Regan's announcement last night. Uh, it was a positive step forward, and we really hope a deal can be reached. If the parties are not able to reach a settlement, you know, our message to the federal government is for them to use every available avenue under the Canada Labour Code to bring a successful conclusion to these contract talks. And that includes back-to-work legislation, which I think would be the next step. And the, I mean, the costs are just too high and the risk too great for this strike to continue. 
And I know a lot of business groups and other organizations are in agreement with that, but I think also did see it as a very positive sign and and recognized that the Labour Minister, I believe his direct quote, or he said that the gap between the positions of the employers and the port workers, it's just not sufficient to justify the continued work stoppage, which I think kind of hints that there could be more action if they don't find common ground, if they don't end this dispute. But we'll have to see what happens after they go over those recommendations. Uh, what is the impact, though? What is what is happening on, on the ground and with the mining industry as this strike continues? Sure. Well, the, the, the reality is the inability for our uh, members in BC, that's the 17 operating mines and two smelters, um, you know, the inability to get their products to international markets is causing uh, their operations, their stockpiling products either on site or in rail cars across BC. And there is a limit to how long mines can continue to do this physically and financially. And and each uh, operation is impacted somewhat differently due to, you know, the commodity being mined, the location of the site, and the transportation being used. But, uh, and some, some, some sites have been able to divert shipments to other ports, you know, albeit with uh, increased cost, effort, and time. But there are those operations who can't have this option. And so if this strike continues much longer, some of our members will have to start planning for shutdowns and temporary layoffs. And when you say for, for much longer, is there a timeline that, that is in place or is there a timeline that, that it, if, if the strike goes on for this many more days, that's what's going to be happening? Yeah, at this point, I wouldn't speculate on that. Again, each, each operation is different. But if the strike uh, continues in the near future, some mines will have no choice but to down tools, which will lead to you know, temporary layoffs of workers. And uh, which obviously is not uh, what workers want to hear and uh, would certainly don't want to brace for that uh, as well. Uh, do you think, though, would that be would it be reasonable at that point uh, if, if we're starting to see industry shut down and operations shut down uh, because of the ongoing strike that the federal government would step in with with a heavier hand? And like you said, the fact that the back to work legislation could be an option. Well, we'd always like to see collective bargaining run its course. But at this point now, I think you heard earlier on in the intro, there's $8.9 billion in trade as of 10.30 a.m. this morning that's been lost. So the, you know, the economic and reputational costs are too high and the risks are too great for this strike to continue any longer. So our perspective is the federal government must intervene if this uh, recent step by Minister O'Regan is not successful. Um, and I suppose one of the other things that's causing some optimism in this is that uh, Seamus O'Regan did say that that looking at both sides, uh, it was his opinion anyway, that there is the potential that a good deal is within reach for both the union and uh, the BC Maritime Employers Association. So does that give you some some hope that uh, there is that common ground to be found? Yeah, well, we always we hope, you know, we hope a deal can be reached. I think that would be best for the ILW and and for the maritime employers and for uh, the economy, for all British Columbians. And again, this isn't just limited to BC as well. This is having an impact across Canada. It's certainly having an impact across the Canadian mining sector. And But if you just look in BC, it's really important to remember 
our industry directly em- employs some 35,000 people in our province. And, um, but if the mines begin to curtail operations, the impacts will not only be felt among our employees and workers, but you know, by more than 3,700 businesses and suppliers in communities across BC who depend on our industry for their economic livelihoods. So there's a lot at stake here. A lot at stake in this province, in BC. What about, though, on the international stage, as far as other countries looking to uh, looking at what's happening in Canada? Uh, like you said, product is now being stockpiled here because it's not going out through the port. Is, is there the potential or is it possible that there could be long, more long-term uh, repercussions because of that and, and other purchasers or clients going elsewhere? Well, indeed, there is a risk that if this strike doesn't end very soon, that uh, the BC and Canadian mining sector could lose international customers to producers outside of Canada. Um, and certainly, um, you know, given everything that's uh, happened over the past three or four years here uh, with our supply chain, um, there is risk that, you know, the perspective of BC and Canada being a dependable supplier of minerals and metals for the world uh, is is being tarnished. Um, you know what's what's important too is, you know, mining is a major user of BC's ports. We're the the largest shipping sector by volume, both by rail and marine modes, and the clear majority of British Columbia's production of you know critical minerals and metals is shipped internationally, and that now, last year, 2022, accounted for 28% of the total value of BC's goods exports. So it's substantial. No, that's a huge number. Yeah, it, it certainly is. And when you talk about as well that it's not just the workers in the mining industry, that the ripple down effects as well of how people are going to be impacted by this. Are you already seeing that or, or are we at that stage? Like you said, there's the potential of operations being shut down, but we haven't got there yet. Well, our, uh, we're not there yet. Um, but as I said, you know, if, if this uh, labor dispute continues, some mines may have no choice but to start to plan uh, for shutdown and, and temporary layoffs. You know, the other side to this too, Jill, is, is the strike is disrupting the inbound delivery. That is the delivery of key supplies and materials for our members' operations. So this includes, you know, new equipment or other inputs for planned capital projects they were intending to deliver through the spring and, and the summer as well as other, you know, equipment and materials that's, that are needed just to keep mines operating on a day-to-day basis, whether it's, you know, widgets, tools, etc. cetera. Uh, so it impacts both, you know, um, goods coming in and goods going out. And I know you said that it was a positive sign that the, the federal minister, the labor minister, stepped in and brought in or gave the, the federal mediator the 24-hour period to, to give those recommended terms uh, now in the hands of both sides. Uh, given what's at stake, though, and the what we're already seeing, the negative impacts of what we've already seen, do you wish that the federal government had stepped in sooner? Uh, the federal government, you know, I, I, I'm not going to really, I mean, that's, that's what, what should have happened. You know, today, 
Importantly, we have Minister O'Regan who's asked for recommendations from the mediator and, you know, uh, I think it was a positive step forward and we, we really truly hope a deal can be reached. It's, it's, it's vital. Uh, if the parties can't reach a settlement, then, uh, you know, our ask to the federal government is for them to use the tools that are available to them under, under the Canada Labour Code. And, and that, you know, includes, um, you know, working with the, the opposition to get some back-to-work legislation. Well, Michael Goring, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, hopefully uh, we can talk again and there will be some uh, good news on all fronts. But thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Jill. This is a story that was published in February of 2022, and the headline is Better Than Tents in a Park, Vancouver Approves Tiny Shelters for the City's Homeless. It was published in the Vancouver Sun, and then it goes on to talk about the 10 by 10 units that would be able to house two people in each unit. It would have heating, storage, beds. They, Some of the people opposed to these were questioning the fact that they didn't have kitchens or washrooms facilities, but it was approved as a way that could be an alternative to, say, a tent city or people being homeless. So here we are in July of 2023, and questions are being asked about whatever happened to the tiny shelter pilot project. Well, Pete Fry, a Vancouver city councillor, joins us now to talk more about this. Councillor Fry, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Jill. Uh, so you've been sharing this uh, on sh- social media as well. What uh, did happen to the project that was supposed to see these tiny shelters? It's a really good question, and I don't have a totally clear answer. Uh, uh, to give it some backstory, I I traveled down to Portland, Oregon, back in 2014 to visit the Dignity Village. And these were sort of intentional communities with these tiny kind of shelters, uh, and then sort of a central bunkhouse and central washroom trailers and that kind of thing. And, and they seem to be pretty successful at triaging folks uh, from homelessness and from living in tents into eventually more permanent housing. And, and what the organizers there told me that it really enabled folks to stabilize uh, their lives uh, to potentially get, you know, mail and get ID or get a job or get, you know, medical treatment or dentures or whatever it was that they needed uh, through a little bit more stability. And the, and the big kind of defining factor was the ability to have locking doors and what a difference that made from from being in a tent and the insecurity of, of living rough in a tent and having to move from place to place. And it really sort of set my own kind of trajectory as, as, as looking at this kind of thing. And I um, continued to sort of advocate for it once I got elected in 2018 to middling success. There didn't seem to be a big appetite from the mayor at the time. There didn't seem to be a big appetite from staff. Uh, at the city of Vancouver, nor BC Housing, for a variety of different reasons. Um, eventually did manage to get uh, a motion passed in 2020, though, to support the idea of these sort of rapid response temporary shelters. And I met with a company uh, out of Everett, Washington, called Pallet Shelters, and they make these, these they're, they're, they're pretty cool. They're, they pack flat like an Ikea. They're made of aluminum and fiberglass. They have, uh, so they're, they're sturdy. They have sort of a little peaked roof or a shed roof. They have locking doors, they have opening windows, they have heat, they have light, they have uh, power hookups for a computer or cell phone charging, they have AC adaptability, they're fireproof, they have fold-down desk uh, kind of surfaces and storage, and a fold-down cot, and it's also big enough to bring even a shopping cart in. And these cost about $15,000 Canadian, and they take about 20 minutes to assemble, and really 
what these pallet guys have done up and down the coast and throughout North America, actually, is uh, to create these, these, these villages of these tiny pop-up shelters that are very quick to assemble and to disassemble. And uh, they've had great success with them because the, the example back in the, the Dignity Village uh, trip that I took, the average, uh, the, well, the, the rules said you could only stay there for two years. The average stay turned out to be about nine months because people, once they got stabilized, they were able to move on and, and typically transition onto housing wait lists to get into permanent housing. So it's a really uh, excellent triage sort of opportunity that uh, arguably is much better than, than the shelter system or the SRO system or, uh, or living in a tent. Now, where it's gone off the rails in the city of Vancouver, it's harder to say. I understand BC Housing, since I met with Pallant back then, and I, I saw them at a recent trade show, and they said that I, I, I connected them with some folks in BC Housing, and, and they have had some success, and I think in, in other jurisdictions throughout BC, and certainly in Canada, Pallant's now opened a Canadian arm because they are seeing real success with the model in jurisdictions across our country. And uh, certainly I think it's something that, that is would be a timely intervention here in the metro Vancouver region. And I know that one of the challenges here in the city of Vancouver, obviously, is that we just you know don't have enough free space. So it is something that would have to take a, a larger look because this does require, you know, a bit bit more space than than obviously a vertically stacked building. But the reality is, the time it takes us to to build those vertically stacked buildings is the problem, and we have needs right now for folks in our city. Uh, well, and certainly there have been discussions lately uh, as well talking about modular housing, and I know that's come back to council. Uh, one of your fellow councillors, Mike Klassen, uh, was here uh, just a couple of days ago uh, talking about why the mo- modular housing is temporary and why it's not going to be permanent or likely won't be permanent. Uh, but one of the reasons was a lack of space and having to make those commitments for city-owned land. Uh, remind me uh, again, where is where are the tiny homes supposed to go? Well, I mean, the model as it's been sort of developed elsewhere is they go anywhere from like sort of, you know, the parking lots are a great kind of resource for that kind of thing. As long as you have, you know, really a power hookup and a flat surface, uh, you can deploy these in, in different configurations and different numbers. I think the key distinction is is where the temporary modular housing, uh, you know, they're, they're temporary because the, there was a time-limited lease on them. But the reality is, is that they're, we were sort of, led to believe, uh, and this was before I was elected, that these modular homes would be able to be disassembled and, and reassembled elsewhere, and that they were kind of like modular Lego blocks of housing. It's turning out that that's not really the case, and it's turning out to be quite quite costly uh, to, to, to move these units around, and, and, and they're not able to move them around. And the, the cost per unit on them is, is, is not insignificant. We're talking about hundreds of thousands for just one, one unit of housing compared to these sort of temporary transition pop-up shelters that cost, as I mentioned, 15000 And so can we deploy these more readily uh, and really more as an ad hoc kind of approach in areas like parking lots? And again, not just in the city of Vancouver, but you know, around our region. And could that be a viable solution? Because the evidence seems to suggest that in other jurisdictions it is, and it is a good triage to get folks stabilized and out of tents and out of more dysfunctional housing arrangements and into something um, a little better managed and a little safer and a little cleaner and a little bit more dignified.
But the numbers that you're saying with the pallet and, and the Portland model, those numbers, even with the exchange, aren't the same as the numbers for the project that was passed by council, because wasn't that some of the, the pushback was that this was a $1.5 million pilot project and that each of these units was going to be closer to $46,000 to build, and it was something like $6,000 a month to operate? Yeah, absolutely. And that's been my frustration in the fact that even at that higher price point, they still haven't um, delivered. So, Why is there such a difference, though, if, if there's this company, and like you said, this is a company now that has a Canadian arm. If they can do it for 15000 why why is the, the project that Vancouver is looking at, why is it 46000 per unit? Different supplier, different RFP process, um, and different kind of operational side. And, and that's my frustration. I don't, I'm not, you know, in the trenches on that side of it. And I'm frustrated because we did have a timeline projecting this would be, you know, in fact, the February, 2022 was, was a late delivery. It was actually anticipated originally to be sooner than that. And, 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 and I guess that's my point. Like we do need, you know, qualified operators to do these things. And we do need uh, ultimately a commitment from BC housing, because this is not Vancouver's alone to take on. Uh, this is, you know, really where we need to take a more regional approach and we need the provincial government at the table doing it. But the reality is, is that as a city of Vancouver, we are, you know, disproportionately paying for, um, you know, this, this this sort of lack of housing and seeing more people on the street and more encampments and that kind of thing that does end up costing us in a different kind of department and a different line item. So why not take some kind of more proactive approach that, that responds to that? And recognizing that we don't have, like, an abundance of available surface parking lots even to do this kind of thing. But certainly, if we spread it around the region a little bit more, if we took a more proactive approach uh, to addressing this before people ended up living on the streets in tents, then it might help. I mean, I I don't see a shortage of, of, of folks living in tents right now through our city. And surely we should be able to, like, provide options that that... that you know, can find a more dignified housing solution for folks while we look to get them into that permanent housing that takes us years to build and hundreds of thousands of millions of dollars. Right. And I think everybody would agree with that and that that would like to see a solution. But is it also an issue of, of jurisdiction when you talk about is it it sounds like this is kind of stalled with B.C. housing and we're talking about B.C. housing or we're talking about what is what sounds like more of a provincial uh, the, something that would fall under the provincial government rather than a civic government, especially when you're also talking about this being a regional approach, not just Vancouver. Yeah, and that's probably where the original motion that I put forward in 2020 um, fall uh, is sort of going off the rails because the reality is is that there's a reluctance on the part of the city of Vancouver to uh, really take this on on its own, and in the absence of you know a, a, a really robust partnership with say BC Housing and with Metro Vancouver to really start looking at these solutions. And I know these are conversations ongoing, but they they're taking too long. And in the meantime, these are real people who are, are struggling on our streets. So, you know, the city of Vancouver, this is this to be clear, um, you know, the city of Vancouver is is carrying about 58 percent of the region's homelessness. Um, and that's 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 not nothing. And that's disproportionate to our relative population. And I think that's something that as a city we are cognizant of and, uh, you know, have to reconcile uh, this larger narrative where we, we, we need to be spreading it around the city. This is, you know, the, the homelessness we see in the city of Vancouver are, is not 
just coming from the, the city of Vancouver. These, these are folks coming from across our region, across our province, across our country. So it, 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 now Vancouver has disproportionately taken on that burden because we have uh, really stepped up to the plate traditionally on issues of homelessness. Traditionally, you know, we have an abundance of the SRO stock, which we know is quickly disappearing because it's just past its due date. We're talking about 120-year-old housing stock in many cases that is just simply falling apart. And so it's no longer a viable option for the sort of last resort before homelessness. And that's why we're seeing more and more people slipping through the cracks because they're coming to Vancouver for that that inexpensive SRO housing. They're coming to Vancouver because that's where the services are. But the reality is, 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 is the housing and the services aren't, aren't able to scale to meet the need. So we need to take that larger look. But in the meantime, to scale these big systems, here's a, a rapid deployment uh, quick solution that you know, is, is quite a dignified housing option. And when they're paired with on-site support services and kitchen trailers and washroom trailers, um, and, you know, a lot of the examples we see in the States, they're, they're really done up quite nicely with painted bright colors and stuff. And, you know, the, the testimonials you hear from folks who are, are living in these facilities, the stability that they achieve once they have a locking door and a place to store their stuff, and they don't have to worry that their tent's going to get ransacked or turfed into a dumpster or whatever's going to happen when they off to even use a washroom, uh, that is um, that is a dignity that is not afforded to a lot of folks. And that's not even afforded to a lot of folks in the shelter system uh, and or the SRO system, let alone living in a tent. No, no I'm for sure. Uh, so do, where do you see it going? Is it still possible, do you think, that this tiny shelter project is going to go ahead? I mean, uh, did council approve the money for it? Uh, I know BC Housing said that it was in conversations with the city about it. Has it just gone off the rails or do you think it could still happen? I mean, the, the money has been approved. The partnership is there. Um, I think it's, it's, it's an issue with the, with the site and the actual construction of these units, which, again, I'm, I'm not... Uh, you know, really up to speed on the particulars of who was awarded the RFP. Certainly, I'd made the introduction to pallet shelters. I thought that was a, a viable option. And they are not the only operator of this kind of model. But certainly, that's one that I'm quite familiar with. And, and I know what it costs. So I'm, I'm not sure why it's gone off the rail and what's particularly happened in, in, in that specific pilot that we'd approved. But um, I don't think that we should necessarily dismiss it outright, especially as we're now looking at the deprecation of a considerable amount of temporary modular housing units that are on, you know, temporary leasehold land. And we now know that these, these modular homes aren't even repurposable for the most part. Um, so it, it demands a real rethink of, of what we're doing, because indeed, if we are repurposing a lot of these lands that we've used for temporary modular housing to achieve, in some cases, actually permanent modular housing or permanent housing, which is great, um, but we also have to recognize that we don't have those temporary spaces, um, and and we need to find them. And again, not just at the city of Vancouver, but certainly we need to be. I think, you know, if it's if it's not working, maybe we need to try something else. And I, yeah. All right. Well, let's leave it there for now. But uh, I know that uh, there will be more on this, and certainly more conversations. Councillor Fry, thank you uh, as always. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. See you, Jill. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.